Good evening, my fellow citizens. This government, as promised, has maintained the closest surveillance of the Soviet military buildup on the island of Cuba. Within the past week, unmistakable evidence has established the fact that a series of offensive missile sites is now in preparation on that imprisoned island. The purpose of these bases can be none other than to provide a nuclear strike capability against the Western Hemisphere. 50 years ago this week, the United States and the Soviet Union grappled with a potential nuclear war during the Cuban Missile Crisis. That speech from President John F. Kennedy set the tone for what would follow. Coming up, how does the crisis of the past still shape U.S.-Cuba relations, and why are those relations still framed by the Cold War? This is Latin Pulse, a weekly analysis of news and public affairs in Latin America. Brought to you in cooperation with American University's School of Communication in Washington, D.C. and Link TV. And now here's host, Rick Rockwell. Bienvenidos and welcome to Latin Pulse. This week our focus is on Cuba, past, present, and future. We'll feature an interview with the wife of Alan Gross, the U.S. contractor serving time in a Cuban prison, convicted of crimes against the Cuban state. But first, Kurt Devine is here with the latest about a major Cuban reform and the rest of this week's review of news from around Latin America. Colombian officials began peace talks with the left-wing FARC rebel group for the first time in 10 years. The two delegations met in Oslo, Norway, where media coverage is limited. The talks are scheduled to last months and will proceed in Cuba at a later date. Colombian Representative Humberto de la Calle expressed moderate optimism for reaching terms of peace. We exclusively want to shed light on this pact with the FARC. That's the proposition. We are not going to just be convinced by them. We will not give in to the force of their ideas. Three previous peace talks have failed. Since 1964, the FARC have sought to overthrow the Colombian government to install a Marxist regime, but the rebel group has become increasingly involved in the drug trade in recent years. Cuba eliminated a 50-year-old restriction that required citizens to purchase exit visas to leave the country. Under the new measure, Cubans will only need passports and visas from their destination country. The decree will allow millions of Cubans to vacation and move abroad without paying the previous $150 charge for exit visas. The government can still prevent applicants from leaving for issues of national security. Commentators have called the decree the most significant advance this year in President Raul Castro's five-year plan of reforms. A court in Cuba sentenced a Spanish politician to four years in prison for manslaughter in a car crash that killed two Cuban dissidents. Angel Caramero Barrios faced a possible 10-year sentence after the death of Oswaldo Paya, a well-known opponent of the Cuban regime. Caramero drove the car that spun out of control. Paya died in the accident. Paya gained popularity as an outspoken challenger to the Cuban government's single-party rule. Paya's wife says she does not believe the accounts that say the crash was an accident. She believes the government targeted Paya and ran his car off the road. We'll have more in our special focus on Cuba this week later in this program. Chile's Supreme Court approved a request to extradite a former U.S. Navy officer wanted in the killings of two Americans. Former Navy Captain Ray Davis was charged last year for the deaths of a journalist and a student. 
The killings occurred in Chile weeks after the coup that brought General Augusto Pinochet into power in 1973. Davis had been investigating the Americans on suspicions of radicalism. A Supreme Court document suggests Davis could have prevented the killings. He now faces 10 years to life in prison. Like most places in the world, Chile was deeply affected by the global economic recession. Although the Chilean president, Sebastian Piñera, has expressed his confidence in the economic recovery, students are less certain. Members of the Chilean student movement came to speak in Washington, D.C. to discuss their concern and advocate for change and support. Jordan Dieri has their story. At the panel this week, members of the Chilean student movement came to discuss their goals and rally students in the United States to their cause. Beginning in 2011, the Chilean student movement was born out of outrage over the growing wealth gap, education inequality between public and private schools, and a government they believe is only looking out for the richer 20% of the nation. The movement has been recruiting citizens and students alike to its cause. As with many countries in Latin America, students say the militarization of the government causes problems for advocating change. However, one of the student leaders, Noam Teitelman, was hopeful for an opportunity during Chile's presidential elections next year. I think this is a moment where we're going to try to make real the dreams that we've been trying to fulfill all this time. Not one day to another, but start taking decisive steps toward that direction. The main issue is how we change our financial system for uh, the education. We move away from the subsidiary role of the state towards a state that can guarantee certain rights like education. Their stop in Washington, D.C. was part of a U.S. tour to gain support for their cause. Their belief in global education reform led them to open the movement beyond Latin America and into the United States, where some of the highest college tuition rates can be found. For Latin Pulse, I'm Jordan Derry. Mexican police stormed three teachers' colleges to break up student protests against curriculum changes. Police arrested at least 120 people in the state of Michoacan, where students seized buses and delivery trucks and set fire to vehicles, including patrol cars. Ten officers were injured, three seriously, during the clash with demonstrators. The students took control of campuses earlier this month to protest plans that would require them to take English and computer science courses, which they say are not a priority for their rural lifestyles. Argentina replaced the head of its navy after investors seized one of its training ships in West Africa over a debt dispute. Navy Chief Carlos Humberto Paz has been replaced, and the Argentine government is investigating who allowed the training ship Libertad to stop in Ghana. American investors put a $20 million price tag on the ship and cited judgments by the U.S. and Britain to seize Argentine assets anywhere in the world. The investors of NML Capital say Argentina owes them more than $300 million. For Latin Pulse, I'm Kurt Devine. Thanks, Kurt. This week we feature an interview with Judy Gross and her attorney, Jared Genser. Judy Gross is the wife of Alan Gross, a contractor, for the U.S. Agency for International Development, or USAID. For most of the past three years, Cuban authorities have kept Gross in prison. A Cuban court convicted him after he brought computer and communication equipment to the Cuban Jewish community. The Cubans said Gross brought that equipment to aid dissidents on the island. Recently, Gross's family announced they believe he may have cancer. We spoke to Judy Gross in the offices of her attorney, Jared Genser, in Washington, D.C. Your husband has been held in Cuba for the past three years. The Washington Post today called him a political hostage. I wonder if you could react to that term. Do you see 
his status the same way that the Post does? I do see him as a hostage. I see him as somebody who's been held for a long time. Um, Cuba clearly wants something for him, but we don't know what exactly. So when somebody's being held because another country wants something for them, I do consider that a hostage. Tell us about the conditions that he's in at this particular point. You just saw him about three weeks ago. What is he living through? I will say that the Cubans are caring for him uh, fairly well. He's in a prison hospital. Uh, he's I've never seen his cell. I've been there four times, but they won't let me see where he actually lives. Um, so he's I see him in this little room that they turn into an interview room. Um, he's let outside once a day for maybe a half an hour. And he uh, is rarely allowed visitors. It's very difficult to get in to see him. And he spends his time reading books, watching baseball on TV, and sleeping. And ex he does exercise a bit. The big news that happened just a few weeks ago is that you folks announced that you feel that he has cancer, and he's not being treated for that in Cuba. Um, why do you feel that way, that, that that is the diagnosis that you see for him? I hope it's not the diagnosis, but we don't know, and it's something that you have to treat as if it were cancer. I mean, somebody gets a huge lump on their body, you're going to go to the doctor and you're going to want a biopsy or a special tests. Um, we've taken the test that the Cubans have done to an expert uh, radiologist here in D.C. who says there's no way you can make a definitive diagnosis with the tests that the Cubans have done. So I'm extremely fearful that this might be a malignant tumor. And he's had it for months now. And the Cubans have not responded to our request for further study. So I'm very concerned. And I would just add, I mean, a couple of points to that. You know, first, uh, Dr. Alan A. Cohen, who did the diagnosis, uh, you know, he made very clear that the presumption should be a malignant tumor. Um, and he said that because of a combination of how long it's lasted, uh, combined with the lack of evidence and what the Cubans had, and the fact that Alan has lost 105 pounds in prison. Uh, and while he probably could have stood to have lost about 40 pounds uh, because he was overweight when he went down there, no one has explained in any definitive way why the other 65 pounds uh, and the Cuban ex government's explanations for this uh, don't ring true. They claim he's exercising too much and not eating enough, uh, and yet he's lost all this weight. Um, the Cubans like to pride themselves on their wonderful health care system. They, they say repeatedly that it's so strong and, and so good, uh, and yet uh, Dr. Cohen noted that you know a patient in this circumstance, uh, any medical professional, would immediately request, uh, after the first set of tests, a contrast CT scan, which would have enabled you to see blood flows in and out of that part of, uh, of his body. And if it was a tumor, you'd be able to see blood coming in and out of it, whereas if it was a collection of blood, as they claimed, you wouldn't see those blood flows. And then if there were the blood flows that meant it could be a tumor, you would do a biopsy. And this all should have happened last May, and we're now in October, uh, and we're still waiting for the Cuban government uh, to respond to numerous requests for him to have an independent medical examination. As you point out, the Cubans are known for their health care system. Uh, recently, they've been treating a, a president from Venezuela um, for cancer. 
And, and so I wonder, why do you think that they're either withholding a proper diagnosis or withholding care from Alan Gross? I, I have no good explanation for it. I don't know if Judy, I can't imagine Judy does either. I mean, you, <clears throat> you would think it would be in their interest to make sure that he stays in reasonably good shape. Um, and it wouldn't be in their interest that anything uh, major happened to him. Uh, my best sense of it is that it's likely, you know, uh, gross professional malpractice rather than intentional conduct on their part. Um, it's interesting that since we came out with that report, which was quite definitive and clear about what should happen, uh, the Cubans haven't responded publicly to it. Um, and on most of the things that we do and most of the things that we say, they stand up and they try to put on the best face and to argue why we're wrong. And they haven't come up with a response to this one yet. So. My best sense is they're trying to figure out how they're going to deal with this, um, but the only way to deal with this is for Alan to be able to have an independent medical assessment as quickly as possible. And have you asked any international groups to become involved in this to, to get that sort of an assessment? Um, any other groups besides the United States to try to intervene? Well, so, I mean, as of right now, the Cubans aren't willing to even talk about this issue with the U.S. government or otherwise. Uh, and so we're not even at a point where we're talking about modalities of how it's going to happen. We'd be delighted to start to have that conversation with the government of Cuba. Uh, of Cuba. But as of now, they're not even responding to, to these numerous requests for an independent medical exam. Very recently, 44 U.S. senators sent a letter to Raul Castro, the president of Cuba, asking for intervention in this case. And even that has not been able to, to leverage the Cuban government. Well, uh, you know, I think as Judy was mentioning earlier, the real question here is what do the Cubans want? Uh, the Cubans have claimed publicly that they want nothing more than to sit down to have an open-ended conversation with the United States about this case and the range of other concerns that they have. Um, but, you know, we've spoken to key officials in the National Security Council most recently, as was publicly reported with Dennis McDonough, the Deputy National Security Advisor, who's very close to the President. We've met with key officials of the State Department. We've met with people all over Capitol Hill who talked to the Cubans. Uh, and they all independently report to us that they've been pressing the Cubans in many different ways and have been very frustrated that it's been impossible to pin down the Cubans as to what they really want. For the last year or so, they claim that they want to exchange Allen for the Cuban Five, um, but the U.S. has made very clear that that's just not going to happen. It's not an easy thing to happen in this day and age. Uh, you know, I, I would note that uh, you know, in a case that involves uh, convicted spies, you're talking about multiple national security agencies that would have to agree to do something like that. It's not as simple as the president just deciding he wants to get this kind of a situation resolved. And so everyone's been pressing the Cubans to come back with a with a real offer that they can put on the table and engage in those kinds of private discussions. And they're just not putting the offer on the table. Uh, and so, you know, I would reiterate the need for the Cubans to come to the table. And I would, of course, also reinforce the need for the United States to come with an open mind to any such discussion as well. Um, the U.S. has to get beyond its own rhetoric um, on Cuba, and, and both sides need to sit down and find a way to get this resolved. I mean, in my view, there are a lot of, uh, there are a lot of you know, members of Congress that uh, have been friends of the government of Cuba for a long time and have tried to increase agricultural trade, uh, remittances, uh, allow for greater travel, and they themselves have thrown up their hands in frustration and publicly come out, uh, as an illustration, Senators uh, Durbin of Illinois and Moran of Kansas have been some of the leaders in the U.S. Senate on these issues, and they themselves publicly came out in July and said, we're not going to do anything else on Cuba. Um, that we believe is in the interest of the United States and we also think helps Cuba, but we're not going to do anything else until we see some movement on Alan Gross's case. And so, you know, I think that it's quite clear what needs to happen. 
the Cubans need to get serious about this. The U.S. has to be serious about this, and they all need to come to the table and talk. Judy, you have some things to add to that? Well, I was just going to reiterate um, about the U.S. needing to come to the table as well, and that's been a point of frustration for the last few years. And I think that no matter what Cuba says, you still have to sit down. People have to get together to get anywhere, to make any kind of progress. So we should keep trying. The U.S. needs to keep trying and trying and not just stop when the Cubans say we want the Cuban Five released. I don't want to politicize this any more than it is, but do you have a view that this might change after the election? I have no idea. <laughs> I wish I, I wish I knew, but I, I can't. Maybe Jared has an idea, but I have none. Well, I, uh, obviously it's my job to work with Judy to help get Alan out, so uh, my goal is to achieve that result after the election. Um, whoever wins the election, my hope is that the Cubans will realize that they're going to have to deal with whatever administration is elected for the next four years, and therefore it would behoove them and it would be in their interests. Um, you know, I noted today, uh, for example, that the Cubans have just uh, uh, d decided to remove the restriction on people exiting the country without permission or at least in most circumstances they're going to allow that. That's an important step forward and it shows a desire to open further to the world and I think that's a, a useful step for them to take. My hope is that in that similar spirit and in that similar direction they'll understand that uh, if they want to engage with the United States on a range of things that they say themselves that they want, um, that resolving this case is the major obstacle to see progress resume in the bilateral relationship with the United States. It, it's an irony, though, that, that we have this movement on visas, but we don't have a movement on moving political prisoners. Well, I, I think that you're right. It's ironic uh, and unfortunate. Uh, at the end of the day, these are you know this is a complicated case, um, and I'm sure we'll get into some of the substance of the case itself. But you know, I agree with Judy's assessment that uh, that the reality is, you know, Alan is a hostage in Cuba, and the real question is, you know, when are the Cubans going to decide that they want to get serious about resolving it? And similarly, we also need the U.S. government to come to the table with a similar degree of seriousness to be prepared to have an open-ended conversation with the government of Cuba about what it takes to get Alan out and to resume a more normal, or at least a slightly more normal relationship than has been the case. But Alan is a, is a victim of a 60-year failed relationship between the United States and Cuba that continues to be failed. Uh, to this day. Well, ironic too that we're 50 years from the Cuban Missile Crisis this week and, and we're, we're having this conversation. But, but Judy, um, obviously those U.S. Senators were trying to represent you in their letter to Raul Castro and they got no leverage, but if you could get a meeting, hypothetically, with the President of Cuba, what, what would you tell him about your husband and why he needs to be released? I would tell him that Alan is a humanitarian and his life has been spent helping those less fortunate governments, developing countries, emerging markets, whatever you want to call it. That's what he's devoted his life to. Um, he has not or has no interest in changing another government's politics. He's a non-political person. He doesn't like politics. And I would say to President Raul, who has quote, been quoted to saying to Senator Leahy, he knows Alan is not a spy. So they need, he needs to do the humanitarian thing. Alan's mother is dying of terminal cancer. She's 90. He has no reason to keep Alan anymore. And I would ask him 
what he would do if he had a mother or a relative who was dying. Would he want to see them come home? We will feature more from our interview with Judy Gross and Jared Genser regarding the case of Alan Gross in the coming weeks on Latin Pulse. I want to finish school and then go to college to be able to graduate and have the future my parents couldn't have because I know that going to college is the best thing I can do for my future. The words of a parent help to build the future of a child. The Hispanic Scholarship Fund has the information to help your kids go to college. Visit yourwordstoday.org or call 1-877-HSF-8711. Sponsored by the Hispanic Scholarship Fund and the Ad Council. With the 50th anniversary of the Cuban Missile Crisis this week, we now turn for context to Cuban expert Phil Brenner, a professor at American University. What are we to take away from the crisis? What should we remember about it from 50 years ago? Well, the most important thing we should know is that it brought us closer to nuclear holocaust than any other incident in our history. Uh, And the best way to understand it is to know that there are actually three different crises seen from three different perspectives. The U.S. crisis, which is called the Cuban Missile Crisis, uh, the sense of that crisis is 13 days and that it ended on October 28th. The Soviet sense of the crisis is that it started much earlier. Uh, It ended actually much later, uh, that uh, it didn't end until November 20th. um, And they call it the Caribbean crisis because they see it as a confrontation between the United States and the Soviet Union on the high seas where the United States had a quarantine around the island and stopping Soviet boats. The Cubans call it the October crisis. They say there were so many with the United States that they started giving them dates instead of names like missile crisis. And for the Cubans, the crisis in some sense never really ended. Uh, The Cuban perspective is that the crisis was caused by the United States' desire to overthrow the Cuban government uh, and that while peace was achieved, the cause of the crisis was never resolved. Uh, because that's still the U.S. policy. Maybe we could go back through those three different crises a bit before coming to the third. Uh, How do you see that the U.S. and the Soviets resolved this whole issue of Cuba having missile parts, assembling missiles 90 miles from the United States? These missiles understand were missiles that had warheads that were 60 times bigger than the warhead that destroyed Hiroshima. Um, And from the U.S. perspective, uh, this was a crisis that uh, was a challenge to Kennedy's leadership of the free world um, that uh, he couldn't tolerate. The Soviets saw it very differently. They were much more concerned about the U.S. threat of invading Cuba. Now, why would they care about Cuba so much? Well, it was a, had become a kind of ally, but much more important, and which is very little realized, is that uh, the Cold War was largely about a competition between the United States and Soviet Union in the Third World. The year before the missile crisis, an organization called the Non-Aligned Movement was created. It was the organization of Third World countries. 25 founding members, Cuba was the only one... Uh, one of the founding members from Latin America. Uh, And this was a group of uh, countries that wanted to be essentially in 
non-aligned to either superpower. They wanted to reduce the pressure be, uh, that they were feeling from the superpowers. And so if the Soviet Union believed that it was the natural leader of the third world. That's what it claimed. The Chinese at this point were attacking the Soviets. They said there are three worlds. There's the first world, the Western capitalist world. There's the second world, the state capitalist world led by the Soviet Union. And then there's the rest of us. And the Chinese communists believe they were the natural leader of the third world. Well, if the Soviet Union allowed the United States to invade Cuba, which was actually in the works. If the United States invaded Cuba and the Soviets allowed that, their claim to be a natural leader of the third world would evaporate. And so this was very important for the Soviet Union in terms of their standing as a world leader. So that's also where we get the term third world. Yes. Which some people find offensive these days. But beyond that, how did this resolve? How did it resolve so the Soviets could save face in front of this blockade that President Kennedy had put forward? Well, what's important is that we now know that it uh, resolved because both Kennedy and Khrushchev were willing to uh, think first about humanity and second about their own political needs. Uh, the reality was that both Kennedy and Khrushchev felt that the crisis was getting so out of hand that we were likely to get into a nuclear confrontation momentarily. And they both stepped back from the brink in order to save humanity. Even though, for example, in the case of Kennedy, he was afraid that if the word ever got out that he was going to take out missiles from Turkey, which is what he told the Soviets he would do, if that word leaked out, he'd be impeached. And if, and Khrushchev, in fact, lost uh, his position as both head of the party and as premier a year and a half later when uh, the, he was removed partly because he backed down in the missile crisis. Earlier, you talked about the three views of the crisis, and you mentioned the Cuban view. The crisis is still unresolved. We may not have had a nuclear war. There may not have been an invasion, but yet there is still an embargo. There, the Cold War seems ever-present. We still talk about spies and espionage when we have discourse about Cuba. Well, in fact, from the Cuban perspective, the war is still on against Cuba. It is the official policy of the United States to have regime change uh, against Cuba. Of course, we send spies. They send spies as well. But what's interesting is that the spies who they send uh, – uh, a group called the Cuban Five, for example, were spying on terrorists in the United States who were launching attacks against Cuba, uh, literal terrorist attacks. And when the United States government... Cuban Americans? Cuban Americans. And when the United States government was given this information by Cuba, the, instead of arresting the terrorists, they arrested the people who were spying on the terrorists. They weren't spying on the United States. They were spying on terrorists on U.S. soil. And those people are now in prison. Uh, and so Cuba says, wow, I mean, this is a way of supporting terrorism against us. And people's lives have been lost. So we wouldn't tolerate that of another country. And Cuba is pretty upset about that. And, and continues to be upset about it. They've, they've offered very recently to have those people released. If the U.S. will, will talk about their release, they'll trade somebody back to the U.S. The person they talk about trading uh, 
they don't quite use that word, but uh, an exchange, uh, is uh, Alan Gross. Um, And his job was to essentially bring in satellite, telephone satellite equipment, um, but he also brought in uh, special SIM cards. Most of us have telephones with SIM cards, and we know what those are. The SIM cards he was bringing in would have prevented the Cuban government from locating where the communications were coming from. And so a real spy could actually send information back to the United States without being uh, noticed by the Cuban government. And so he was probably doing work also for our intelligence community. And uh, that he's in prison for this, for a 15-year prison sentence, uh, and the United States refuses to acknowledge he broke any law. Phil Brenner from American University, thank you very much for joining us today on Latin Pulse. It's a pleasure. Thank you, Rick. Latin Pulse is available on the web and via iTunes. To see the Latin Pulse archives of video programs on Latin America, you can check out Link TV's website, www.linktv, all one word, .org, and then forward slash Latin Pulse, also all one word. That's www.linktv.org forward slash Latin Pulse. If you'd like to comment on this week's program, you may leave us a message online via SoundCloud or on Facebook. Or you can write us via email. You can find us at latinpulse at gmx.com. That's latinpulse, all one word, at gmx.com. Thanks for joining us this week on Latin Pulse. For our entire team, associate producer Kurt Devine, Announcer Victor Kilo and writer Jordan Derry. I'm Rick Rockwell. Escucha nosotros vez. Gracias por su tiempo. Latin Pulse is produced in Washington, D.C. at American University's School of Communication with the support of Link TV. Theme music provided by Link TV and additional music from Canary Productions and Bathtime Music Publishing. This program is copyright 2012 Las Rocas Productions.